kind of feel it today is mostly in my knees, but uh, we're getting older. I used to run up that mountain, or could have. Got any power now? Okay. All right. Hello again, if you didn't hear me. My mic, for some reason, hadn't been activated uh, in a way that it was usable. Anyway, we finished up, uh, well, we went through Feast of Dedication last Sabbath, but before that, we were in 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, Paul had quite a bit to say about marriage and uh, whether it should be now and, and about terms for divorce and so on with members of the church and unconverted mates and that type of thing. Well, that was probably quite a controversy then, just as it became in the church today. And in chapter 8, where we are, he addresses another issue uh, that was there at stand in Corinth at the time, and as we'll see, uh, has been here in the end-time church of God as well, to one degree or another, and how do we handle it and so on. So he says, now is touching things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So, obviously there was a certain amount of understanding and knowledge of the Temple of Diana, for instance, and the idols that were there, and how they worshipped the idols, sacrificed animals to the idols, and... Different ones had different opinions about how to handle that or how to deal with it and whether or not you could eat meat that had been offered to an idol. So Paul weighs in on that, but his warning before he goes into it is we all have knowledge about this, but we need to be careful that we don't have our own opinion and pride, ego, and vanity and get puffed up and divided over it, if you will. Uh, Love edifies. So if we approach things with the proper love, the division will not occur. If we don't approach it with proper love, then ego, vanity, pride, knowledge, superior knowledge we would think that we might have, puffs us up and causes division. Because we push what we believe. That's been done many, many times throughout history, and it has been done in the end-time church, and I'm sure all of us have participated at one time or another uh, in that very thing. So a warning before he even gets into the doctrinal issue, because I'm sure he knows there will be divided opinions on what he's about to say. Just as there were divided opinions in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we have... In the end-time church, different opinions and viewpoints that people have taken of 1 Corinthians 7 and what it means, and people get upset and divided over that. And they accuse one another of living in adultery or whatever, and in some cases it's true. Uh, How does it all fit into what Paul said and along with the rest of the Bible? So we have to be very, very careful. Because making judgments and condemnations one of another uh, does not lead to love. It leads to puffing up and division. 
So, and if any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So you may be proud, unfortunately, pride is not something we should have, of the knowledge that you have. And I think that we all got puffed up in that way as a church. God called us and God gave us the knowledge and it's exclusive and we're better than all these other churches. No, we weren't any better than anybody else. I'm no better than a Methodist. I'm no better than a Catholic. As a human being, I'm no better than anybody. Just a human being. Walk down the street, can't tell the difference between me and any other human being in the mall. We're all the same. We all have the same nature. Instead of being puffed up and looking down on others who don't understand what we understand, we need to be so very thankful that a merciful God gave us what he gave us and humbled by it. Who am I that you would give me the knowledge that I have? Am I any better than anybody else that you'd call me out of this world? Well, God himself has the answer to that. I call the weak in the base. Oh, that ought to shut us right up. We're not so important and great. He calls the base to confound the wise. And we, who have been base and are, will through his power confound the wise. But it won't be us that did it. I mean, you go out there and try right now. The knowledge you have. Try to share it with others and see how far you get. I can't push the things I understand about Zion and Jerusalem, even on my own family, because there's resistance. Everybody knows it's over there. Everybody knows that. What's this? So, we're all in that boat. You think you're so knowledgeable that you can convince somebody. You're going to be talking to people, for the most part, who have an aversion to God in the first place. And they know not the things of God, neither want to know the things of God. So your knowledge is of no value unless it's used properly and with love within the church. So he says, you may think you know something, but you still are woefully short of what you really ought to know. In other words, there's always more to learn. And just because we have a certain amount doesn't mean we ought to get proud of it. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. If you do love God, then he knows you, and you're known of God. And he called you, not because he loved you necessarily more than anybody else. He loved the whole world and sent his son. Why would he have loved you as a carnal human being any more than anybody else? No, he says, well, there's a weak one there. Maybe I'll call that one. Maybe that one will listen, and I can use them in my purpose. Not that we were any better than anybody else. And he didn't love us anymore than he loved anybody else. But he called us for his own purposes.
So, he says you better know God, and then God will know you. And don't get proud of what you do know, because it all came from God. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. So to open this discussion, he asks for humility, he asks for understanding and love, and then he introduces the subject. Meat offered to idols. And his opening statement is that idols are nothing. There's only one God. So if somebody's worshiping an idol over there, that idol is not God. It's not God. It has no power. I saw Saint the Black Peter in the in the Vatican, and his toe literally is almost kissed off. Most everybody that goes to the Vatican kisses that black statue's toe. Uh, I wiped it off very carefully first. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't kick it, didn't, didn't lick it, didn't kick it. Uh, but I noticed it. And how much adoration it is given. You know, that, that idol means nothing. It's just a piece of rock somebody carved out of black rock. That's all it is. You go around the main altar there in the entryway and it's covered with snakes and crocodiles and all kinds of unclean things. Has a woman there who's way pregnant with flies on her stomach. God of the flies. There's idols everywhere in that building. It's kind of creepy. But I didn't feel worried because they're powerless. Now, if there are demons there, which there are, well, that's something else entirely. But he says... The idol is nothing. And there's only one God. So let's get this straight. There's only one God that you need to fear. The rest are not gods at all. For though, though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, there be gods many and lords many. There are a lot of things that people call God, but he says, no, there's only one God. But to us... There is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one, Lord Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel, by whom are all things, and we by him. He did all the creating, as it says in Colossians, and without him nothing was created. So there's one God, and there are two beings in that, the Father and Christ. And that's it. So you don't need to worry about anything somebody carves out of wood or stone. Uh, it has no power. Whether people ascribe it to it or not. Priests of Baal, oh boy, they had their gods, but they couldn't get them to answer. Elijah wasn't afraid of them. Okay, how be it, verse 7, there is not in every man that knowledge. There will be some misunderstanding, he said, because some won't grasp that there's only one God, and these others mean nothing. Everybody doesn't grasp that. 
there were controversies at times within the end time church of God when we would need a hall and the Masonic temple was available or uh, other uh, buildings of that nature might have been the International of Odd Fellows or whatever uh, and that was pretty much what there was in that area to use now some people could walk in there and they weren't afraid of the Masonic all-seeing eye or whatever. And others walked in and thought, oh, we can't worship here. Look at all these pagan symbols. Now Paul is saying, there's only one God that you need to be concerned about. And every man doesn't get that. For some with conscience, conscience, consciousness and conscience of the idol unto this hour, it is the thing of science of uh, as offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled so he says someone who is afraid to eat meat offered to an idol and it bothers their conscience is weak they don't understand that meat is meat whether somebody prayed over it to a wooden or a stone idol didn't change the meat. But because we are afraid of idols or creeped out by it, it might bother our conscience to eat meat that had been offered to an idol. But he said anybody that is in that condition is weak. They don't grasp. So he's going to explain. If you're weak, then your conscience is defiled by it. I think the same could be said of the uh, Masonic symbols there. You didn't want to use their hall, but you use their dollar bill. Why does their hall offend you, but their dollar bill doesn't? You won't use their hall, but you'll use their dollar bill. Got the same symbols on it. You're passing it back and forth and using it. So what's the difference? Whether you use their meat or whether you use their dollar bill. Or their hall. What's the dip? Now, I didn't like those things, and I moved the church from El Monte to to Glendora in the in the L.A. Basin because we were meeting in a Masonic temple, and I liked the Garden Club of the ladies better. Uh, had bigger picture windows and a garden around it, and uh, it was a better place to meet, and it didn't have all that paganism there. I didn't run out with uh, lifting my skirts in horror the first time I went in that Masonic temple. Uh, we met there for, I, I don't know how long, maybe a year before I found another hall and moved it. But I wasn't going to freak out over it because I know their all-seeing eye and all that stuff means nothing. Uh, I visited Washington, D.C. and looked at Washington's monument and Lincoln's toes and all kinds of things there, statues of men, and uh, seen the paganism, but it's their problem, not mine. I worship the true God in heaven, and whatever man does down here, essentially, is meaningless. I walked in somebody's house the other day that had a Christmas tree there. When I saw it, I didn't just bail out and run. Uh, the Christmas tree didn't mean a thing to me. I mean, would I rather, rather it not been there? Well, yeah, but it's not my house. Not my problem. 
But meat commends us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So he's talking not here about any meat, he's talking about meat that has been offered to idols. And whether you eat it or you don't, he said, God doesn't care. Not a problem to him. It's only a problem to you if you're worried about that idol. And that means that you're weak and worried about something that has no effect. A leering, grinning idol, what effect does that have? It says it doesn't matter to God. He doesn't get involved. People think that God is involved in a lot of things he's not. It always kind of, uh, what's the word I want to find to use here? It's interesting, let's put it this way. When sports teams have a prayer before they go out to play, that God will be with their team and help them win. And the team in the other locker room is praying that God be with them and help their team to win. Well, maybe that's religious schools more than it is others now. But nevertheless, they're all assuming that God is interested in football and would care about the outcome of a stupid football game. And they pray that they will not be injured. Well... Football's a violent game. You get injured. And after their prayer's all done, they go out and mash themselves together and somebody gets injured almost invariably in spite of their prayers. God is not involved in their prayers. Not the true God. He could care less. What about war? That ratchets it up a bit. Protestants and Catholics facing each other across the battle lines. Each one praying to Jesus that they be protected and preserved and that they win. And then they go out and shoot each other and a lot of them die. And Jesus didn't help either side. Now there have been times he has taken the side of Israel because of the covenant he had made with them. So I won't disallow that, but I'm speaking generally in terms of warfare and even Gentile Ones that don't know God at all, but have their idols that they pray to instead of to God. And, of course, those Protestant Catholics don't realize they're praying to Satan anyway. But he says, God's not involved in the meat that you eat. I don't pray before I order a hamburger or a steak as to which God would prefer me to have. And I don't know what's happened to that meat on its way. I don't know whether a rabbi blessed it or not. I don't believe in rabbi blessings. But if it's kosher, I know a rabbi probably blessed it, one way or another. Well, he offered it to his idol Satan. I mean, you know, you buy a kosher weenie today, it's been offered to Satan. That rabbi doesn't know God. He worships, he knows, he knows not what. Okay, So, it's alive and well today, the same thing. It's the conscience that is defiled if you're weak. Meat commends us not to God. God isn't happier whether we eat a meat offered to idol or whether we don't. It's a non-issue to him. 
That's what Peter Paul's saying. And it makes it very clear it's a non-issue to him as well. <clears throat> if you eat it or you don't eat it, you're not worse off. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Now here kicks in what he asked up above about love. Are we going to condemn or tell somebody they're pagan if we are weak and believe that that idol somehow polluted the meat? Uh, will we get condemnative? Will we not show love? Will we be puffed up and say, well, I know more than you about this subject and you're defiled? He says, be careful about stumbling blocks because love will do all it can not to create stumbling blocks for each other. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't know it, and sometimes we may even do it deliberately. For if any man see you which have knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? Now he might see you eating it, and he doesn't believe it's okay, but he, would he be emboldened to break his conscience and eat it anyway, not understanding that it's okay, but doing it because you did? It could still defile his conscience because he thought it was wrong. So we need to be careful until they come to understand. He says, then, and through your knowledge <clears throat> shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. You know it's okay to eat that meat, even though it's been offered to Diana or whoever. But if he does not think it's right to do it and does it simply because you did, he defiles his conscience. And when you do that, it becomes sin, and sin is death. So what we do in front of somebody who doesn't understand what we understand can cause them problems. Therefore, we need to be uh, let our love show <clears throat> so that we don't hurt somebody if we can, can at all help it. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So if that brother doesn't believe he should eat it, and you influence him to do it anyway, and it bothers his conscience, then you're sinning against Christ. Not against that brother so much as Christ. David made that very clear. I didn't sin against man, Uriah, or his wife. He sinned against God. Because it was God's law he was breaking. Not Uriah's law, or Bathsheba's law. Against you and you only have I sinned, he says. You can't sin against somebody if it's not their law. It's God's law he broke, not Uriah's law. So our sin is against God. And if we cause another to sin, then our sin of lack of love and creating a stumbling block is against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stand, lest I make my brother to offend. Now that's a pretty bold statement. I don't know exactly or for sure what his entire reference was there. The subject is meat offered to idols. 
And he may be summarizing this by saying, if I'm going to cause a weak brother to offend, I will not eat meat offered to an idol from now on till my death. That's the subject here. It hasn't changed. On the other hand, you might push it further, and he may have meant this. I don't know. It doesn't say. But it's not in the context, at least. And he does address uh, vegetarianism in another place. I think we already discussed that, so now we will again. Uh, but if somebody thinks you should only eat vegetables and meat, eating meat offends them, and they think you're sinning against God by eating clean meat, then maybe you shouldn't eat in front of them so that they're not caused to have a stumbling block. And you can puff yourself up and say, well, I know from the Scripture it's okay to eat meat. And therefore, I'm going to eat it, and that's too bad for you. You better get some knowledge. And that's where pride takes over. I know more than you do, and you better straighten up and learn. We have to be careful. Don't push it. It's going to offend them. Don't do it. And people have trouble with these things sometimes. I know my parents had grown up Methodists and never had a drink of alcohol, and they'd been taught all their lives it was sin to drink alcohol. They came into the truth and learned that the Bible says, oh, it's okay. Well, the Methodists didn't think so, but the Bible did. But, you know, there was a transition period in there when it was hard to do something that you had always been taught was sin. Now, it wasn't the same with giving up unclean meat. You weren't being asked to, give, to do something that you thought was a sin. You were asked to give up something that wasn't uh, something that you had a conscience about in the past. Oh, I learned that. I shouldn't eat pigs. Oh, okay. I won't eat pigs anymore. But with alcohol, it's an opposite situation. You are being told you can do something that your conscience had told you you shouldn't do. With the pig, your conscience had told you it was all right. So giving it up didn't bother your conscience. It was just a doctrinal matter. But drinking the alcohol could bother your conscience pretty heavily if you'd been taught it was sin. If they'd have taught us we could also smoke cigarettes, uh, that would have bothered our consciences. Thankfully, they didn't do that one. But I remember, I think I've recounted it to you before, uh, there was a car accident down on the highway, and whoever survived it had thrown all their beer cans way out in the brush. And be, me being an enterprising young fellow, I wondered what there might be around that accident scene that I might uh, like to have. And I found a full can of beer out there. Don't remember if it was Coors or Lone Star, whatever it was. So I wagged it home, having learned through the church that it was okay to drink alcohol. But it bothered my parents because they'd been taught all their lives you weren't to. So they didn't say, oh, okay, we learned it's okay, let's have some beer. That beer sat there in that fridge for weeks and weeks. I don't remember how long. I was 10, 11 years old probably. Sat there for a long, long time until one Saturday night they decided to get brave and open it. And pass it around. Mom, Dad, the kids, we all had some. 
out of one can. And they were afraid they were going to get fallen down drunk having one-sixth of a can of beer. Didn't know. No, never experienced it. Didn't know what it did. But it took them a while, with it sitting right there, knowing it was okay, to get their conscience in line enough that they could do it without hopefully feeling that they were sinning. They were probably still a little queasy, uneasy about it, I'll say that. Not queasy from the alcohol, it wasn't enough to make you queasy. But because it was alcohol. So, we have to be careful, because when we're new, that conscience has to be educated. And not only then does it have to be educated, the emotions have to come in line, so that you're not condemning yourself. And that can take some time. So he says, if it takes to the end of the world, uh, I better be careful with my brother and show love to them. First point he made at the top of the chapter. Uh, knowledge can puff you up and make you override other people, or you can love them and be very careful what you do, lest they be offended. And we all make mistakes on that. If we didn't, there wouldn't be so many offended people around. Because he tells us, don't get offended. He tells us, don't cause offense. And some people say, well, you caused offense. And the answer to that, well, you appear offended. Well, doesn't God also say, don't be offended? Isn't that a two-way street? If you're offended, somebody may have caused that offense. But if you're offended, you're sinning too. Because he told you, don't get offended. We don't think of it that way very often. We're incensed and offended because that obviously was wrong. So we draw ourselves up on our high pride and condemn somebody for something that so obviously was wrong. And we are so uh, righteously indignant toward them. Better be careful. There's pride, vanity, and puffed up there. And it isn't love. And Christ emphasized not being offended just as he might emphasize don't offend. So it's something we need to be careful of both ways. Chapter 9. Have I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the eternal? Well, he's been giving them some pretty heavy-duty instruction here. And he's then saying, wasn't I put here for this? Isn't that what I'm here for? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. Now, others around the world, whatever, wouldn't have thought Paul was an apostle of God. But he said, you know it. I think we came to know that Herbert Armstrong was one sent as an apostle to us. Now, people will take the Greek meaning of apostles saying it's just one cent. And they say, well, we were all sent, so we're all apostles. There's someone right here on this property that thinks all church members are apostles because they were sent. What? Doesn't it say there a little later in 1 Corinthians, not all are apostles in so many words. 
Christ has put some in the church. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are teachers, some do miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? No, he's making it obvious they're not. And yet somebody will say, Greek says apostle means one set. When I was sent, I'm an apostle. You're just taking a Greek definition, but you're leaving out what God says. But some are and some aren't. Some have other functions. See how easy it is to get off? So easy. And that's one way they discredit me. Now I've never called been I've never claimed to be an apostle. But there's another group right here on this property that decided that they were Ephesians and that they needed to get, they were the Ephesian church. So they decided that since it says to Ephesus, you've got to get rid of false apostles, that they have to get rid of me. Who made me an apostle? Nobody. God didn't. I didn't. But they did. They called me one so they could get rid of me. They're the one claiming I'm an apostle, not me. Paul fought the same battles here. I may not be to everybody, but I am to you, he says. For the seal of my apostleship are you in the eternal. He says, God used me to educate you, to help call you to where you are. My answer to them that do examine me is this. He says, yeah, I have people who don't think I am one. Here's my answer. Have we not power to eat and to drink? We're human beings. We can eat. We can drink. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the eternal, and Cephas, or Peter? He says, here I am in Corinth, and... I'm free. God allows me to do anything that's within his word. Eating and drinking is okay for me. Being married is okay if I decide to be. Peter is. That's no big deal. Or is it only I and Barnabas that have not we, or let's see, have not we power to forbear working? Now there were times when he went different places. He worked as an example to others. As a, as a tent maker. But he's going to point out here, I don't have to do that. I was just doing that to help those who might be new, who might be worried about money, who don't think that a, a, a minister should live off the gospel. So I was making tents. When he came into one area, he'd say, don't eat things offered to blood, don't... Uh, or don't eat blood, don't fornicate, he'd give them two or three things, just to start them out that they shouldn't be doing. I mean, in Corinth, with all that they were doing, you're not going to give them a whole list of everything God says immediately. If you can just get them to stop doing something, you're making progress. And that's kind of what I faced in the Bahamas. I go over there every three months for a Bible study. And I think I've told you about the guy. 
who wanted to be baptized. And I talked to him a little bit, and I says, well, are you keeping God's laws? Well, a little fornification. So I says, well, if you're fornicating, I didn't use his spelling, if you're fornicating, uh, then you can't be baptized, really, until you get in line and, and stop that. So every three months, he'd say, I want to be baptized. I say, well, are you still fornicating? Well, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> well, keep working that direction, you know, and uh, and quit it, because I need to see fruits meet for repentance of sin before I can baptize you. So that went on for quite some time. I don't think he ever got baptized while I was still there. He might have later, I don't know. But he had never quit fornicating. <laughs> So, it was okay, he says, for me to eat and to drink and to have a wife, like Peter does. But Barnabas and I have been sent to work with you. Now, we don't have to work for a living, he says. That's what he's leading into. Who goes to warfare any time at his own charge? Do you, when you sign up with the Marines or the Army or the Air Force or the Navy... Do you uh, pay for your way? Or do they take care of you and pay you to go get killed for them? No, you charge them for it. Don't pay you much. You're not worth much. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's one more soldier dead on the battlefield? Doesn't mean much to them. <clears throat> yeah, you value your life a whole lot more than the U.S. Army values it. But nonetheless, they pay you. Who plants a vineyard and eats not the fruit thereof? Or who feeds a flock and eats not of the milk of the flock? You have a farm, you have a ranch, uh, you raise food, you eat it. You don't just give it all away. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Now, I've heard people say, well, this is, you've got to feed your oxen, but you don't have to feed the preacher. They don't understand principles. But he's making a point. God takes care of those who do what they're supposed to be doing. For says he, or says he it altogether for our sakes. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about himself and Barnabas here. And whether they need to work or whether their living should be paid another way. He does it for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. So he's saying this thing about uh, not muzzling the ox that treads out the corn is written about Barnabas and me. We're not supposed to work without eating. And he goes on to say that he that plows should plow in hope, and that he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. You shouldn't hire on to thresh or tread grapes or whatever and not get paid for it. So many scriptures that say you ought to be paid for what you do. Now, can we volunteer to do certain things? 
work on the temple, whatever, yeah, nothing wrong with that. But if somebody is working for a living, they need to be paid for it. Uh, Cyrus uh, asked for volunteers to build the temple, and many came, and they did the best they could. And finally, uh, they were given wages, and the king says, give them everything they need so that they can get the work done. Pay them. Give them their food. And that is a principle that is good. If we have sown to use spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? What's more important, spiritual things or physical things? Well, physical things are not going to get you anywhere. You're going to die and can't take them with you. There have been pharaohs and others that have tried to take all their horses and wives and silver and gold and everything with them to nirvana or wherever that particular religion would have them to go to live forever in peace and prosperity. But scripture says you can't take it with you when you go. You was born naked and you're going to go back naked. Or almost. You're not going to take anything with you. So what's more important? Eternal life or things we have in this physical life? Well, that should be obvious to anybody that the spiritual is more important. So, if we bring you spiritual things that can help bring you eternal life, isn't that more important than if we brought you physical things? So, did they volunteer to help Paul? Did they volunteer to help in the work? Yes, they did. But he still had, they still had an obligation to take care of him. That's why God instituted tithes and offerings in the first place. Went to the priests, and then in the New Testament, Paul said, okay, it's changed now. doesn't go to the priests anymore. goes to the ministry. Very clear. Change in the law, or in the application of the law. Uh, is it a great thing if we shall reap your material things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Isn't what we're giving you more important than what you're receiving physically? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. They had the power to do it. He says, but Barnabas and I have been working and making our own living because of you who are new, of you who are weak, who might think we're taking advantage of you, by taking that physical things, or those physical things you might have, and using them for our living. So we're trying to be careful and not use your things so much and make our own living. Now, within reason, I tried to do the same thing here. I didn't make two or three million dollars off this place. I put literally hundreds of thousands of my own assets into it and only charged a hundred dollars a month for a whole acre of land with unlimited water and fixed the roads now have I taken some out of tithes and offerings for living on yeah but I put more in probably by far of my own assets that I had before I ever came here that I've ever taken out I know that to be the fact 
So I tried to set an example of me not doing what Worldwide did, of trying to extract every dime I could from everybody in order to have what they had, and so on. Now, Pasadena sometimes misused and abused that and used those planes for going gambling in Reno or Nevada or somewhere. Uh, and they did all kinds of things. They were calling for us to use our credit cards to the max, sell our houses, do everything we could to scrape up every dime for the final push. That was in the 60s when I was still in Miami. And my dad was building a swimming pool for an evangelist in Big Sandy at the time that was going on. It bothered him. But he was asked to mortgage his home while he built swimming pools for evangelists. I could understand why it bothered him. Now you're going to see a few toys around here you haven't seen before. But I didn't buy them off your money. So you know what I hope? I hope these people that think that they're withdrawing the rent for $40,000 and that have made us go to court and spend a lot of money on lawyers, I hope they see a couple of toys that are going to be around here that didn't necessarily come from my money or your money, but they came from another source. And I hope that they'll see those and think, we didn't break him after all. Here we are paying lawyers and he doesn't appear to be broke. I love that concept. Maybe we ought to quit paying lawyers too. Whatever. Let's go on down. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? It was a power that they had to collect tithes and offerings. God had given that in Scripture. They were simply setting it aside for a time in order for people who were new not to think that this was all about money. And that's what I did here, was try to make people think and believe and understand that this wasn't all about money. I am not impressed with numbers and money. Uh, put my own in it. So, now what do we have? People have decided they ought to own it. Because I guess they were afraid they were going to lose it or weren't getting it cheap enough. Where are you going to live for a hundred bucks a month? So then he goes on to say, uh, We have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. We don't want to create a stumbling block. Do you not know that they which minister or serve about holy things live of the things of the temple. Those offerings and so on that were brought to the temple. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. The altar receives it, and those who work there receive it. And then he puts it in plain English, or Greek, I guess. Even so, as the Eternal ordained, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But that which comes in should be used 
for their living. He's saying, we have this power. We have this instruction for God. It is completely legal. There's nothing wrong with it. It's what God has ordained and put in Scripture. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done to me. He says, I haven't been here trying to extract your money uh, for my sake. And I've tried to follow this example here by putting my own in instead of taking out and demanding bigger offerings and so on because I wasn't getting a big enough salary. You haven't heard that here. You very rarely even hear about an offering. If we move the offering box from that hall to this one, I'll tell you where it is, and that's about as far as I go most of the time. You know, and God knows, and what you bring and offer to him, if the ministry profits from it, so be it. That's what God ordained. For it were better for me to die than any man should make my glorying void. He says, if I'm going to offend others by what I do, and I try to uh, lord it over them, I'd be better off just to die. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Why is it a glory, and why would you take it as a glory, to preach the gospel? Pride? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm the one that has the truth, and I'll give it to you. Well, he wasn't supposed to have pride. I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Was it his choice to preach? God struck him down on the road to Damascus and made him blind, and then taught him, and he says, I am appointing you an apostle, go do it. Oh, so it wasn't something he did on his own. Nor did the other prophets. Some of them, when God would come of them, come to them, would say, "Hey, wait a minute! I'm just a, pick, a sycamore picker. I, I don't want to be a prophet." Moses says, "Well, you know, I can't talk very well, so I shouldn't do that." And resisted when God told them that He wanted them to go do it. You know what? I didn't go up to the stage in Pasadena when I graduated from college and say, uh, would you please ordain me? I'm going to go out and preach the gospel. Didn't do that. I was sitting there like everybody else. And they called me and told me to come up there and have Herbert Armstrong and all the evangelists lay their hands on me. I didn't ask for it. Now, having been through college and been trained, I anticipated that it was a possibility, but I didn't know. Well, I was told a few days ahead of time by Ted Armstrong. But he called me in. I didn't go to him and say, you know, I think I'm pretty well qualified here. It doesn't work that way with God. But it was a problem in the church because everybody wanted to be a deacon or they wanted to be an elder or they wanted to be a minister. And there's all kinds of vanity and ego and pride and people putting each other down and people trying to climb over each other and all kinds of that stuff that went on. And none of it was godly. Well, he says, 
I didn't do this out of my own desire. It was laid on me. Yes, woe is to me if I preach not the gospel. Now, if God told him to do something, he better do it. I was ordained to be a minister. There were times when I was not a minister. And I didn't want to be the last time I was kicked out of a church organization. I said, I'm not going to start another one. There's already three or four hundred. Why would you need one more? I didn't want to preach anymore. I had enjoyed being out of the ministry immensely when I was in Alaska for 12 years. It wasn't a matter of vanity or pride. It might have been when I was 22, but it certainly wasn't by then. I had seen what goes on in the fishbowl you live in, in the criticism, in the condemnation, in the second guessing, in the naysaying, and all the garbage that goes with this job. And I'd had enough. Didn't want any more. And I was not going to start another organization. And then people called and says, will you? Deep breath, okay. But, I, but God sent those people. And I had been ordained. And I, I must do this. If there's only two of us left, I must do this. Or three or five or whatever. Doesn't matter. It's not about numbers and money. Now, he said, I didn't initiate it, didn't want it, it was laid on me. And woe if I don't preach it. If I don't do what God commissioned me to do, uh, I'm in trouble. Now, on the other hand, presumptuousness is as witchcraft. And if anybody decides he's going to be a preacher and he hasn't been ordained of God to do it, he's putting himself in the same place Paul was. Woe is me if I do it. And his was woe to me if I don't do it. If you're self-appointed, God doesn't like it. If God appoints you, you have to learn to like it. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed to me, I'm going to reap the reward of not doing what God told me to do. So he says, I might as well have a good attitude about it and do it willingly. Not go through life with a chip on my shoulder saying, I didn't want to do this, but he struck me blind, so I figured I'd better, and therefore I'm going to tell you what you ought to do. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. No, he didn't take that attitude. He took the attitude, yes, God directed me here to do what I've been given to do, and I better do it willingly. I am here today speaking to you willingly that we might all better understand and love one another and help one another and strengthen one another in serving God that we might all be enhanced in our spiritual battle to be in the kingdom of God. With me at this point, it's heart and mind that causes me to be here, not that I had to. If y'all quit and went away, I wouldn't preach anymore, except I'd still have to talk to myself. <laughs> but then I could go a-fishing. 
And that's what all the apostles said. Oh, I'm going to go back and be a tax collector. He's gone. I'm going fishing, man. I've had enough of this mob around. So he said, I have to do it willingly. What is my reward then? Verse 18. Truly, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. So he says, Christ did say, what you receive freely, give freely. So we don't charge uh, people for books, magazines, tapes, whatever. Uh, God gave it to us. Why should we sell it to somebody else and make a profit off it? On the other hand, he did have the power to draw a salary from the congregation. He says, but I'm not using it because I don't want to be a stumbling block. On the other hand, as many churches as he was taking care of and the travel he had to do, in some respects, the church would have been better off had he been able to spend his time with them scattered all over than with having to make tents. But the local ones needed that example in his view, and that's the way he did it. But he told Timothy to pay the elders there in the book of Timothy. So it wasn't, it was what he was trying to do to help people with their conversion, especially early in their careers. So though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant to all, that I might gain the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. Now, did he adopt all the Jewish doctrines? No. But he was able to communicate in such a way with the Jews that what he said might not be offensive to them, if possible. To them that are under the law, as under the law. The Jews still felt they were under the Old Testament law. That I might gain them that are under the law, that are still under the penalty of the law. New Testament Christian has been removed from that penalty to the sacrifice of Christ and his blood. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but understanding the law to Christ. So, he says, those that don't have the law, I don't push the law at them. I try to treat them lovingly, kindly, gently. I'm not going to tell them how bad they are because they don't keep the law of God. I've got a son right now that I had a very wonderful visit with for the last four days. He grew up partly in Pasadena and saw the hypocrisy there of what was going on. Uh, terrible hypocrisy. And then the breakup, and then he got involved with a Ishmaelite uh, preacher that took him way down a path of deception. And now he's waking up. He, he saw the fallacy of that, so he's gotten away from it. But he also saw the hypocrisy in worldwide, which to this day bothers him. Because he was going to school, the imperial school, with evangelist kids who were fornicating. And their fathers were dating the co-eds. And so on and so forth. And he saw all that. 
Didn't get involved in it, but he saw it. He was a virgin when he was married, okay? At age 30. And now he has a fine family. But here he is in recovery. His feelings are gentle. He doesn't know for sure on some doctrinal things, because obviously there were things doctrinally that were wrong and worldwide too. And I've discovered a lot of them since then. But I am not going to sit there with him and his family. His kids were born in this Ishmaelite pagan church that they were attending. They were born there. It's easy for me to forget that. And they had been influenced by that all their lives. And here he's telling them now that was all wrong and they see that. But now they don't know all is right. And neither does he. And you know what? Neither do I. We all have knowledge, but nothing yet as he ought to know, Paul said at the top of this chapter. We're all still learning. So I'm not going to sit down with him and say, Son, I know I'm glad to see you out of deception. Now you better see everything as I see it, because I'm right and you're wrong. How's that going to help? It's not going to help a bit. So I told him, I love you. I'm glad to see you in recovery. I know you've got to work your way through it. And I don't know that I have all the answers, but I love you, and I'm glad to see you trying to get on the right track. So he's believed at one point the law was not needed. He's beginning to realize he ought to keep the Sabbath again. But you know what? He grew up in worldwide being taught you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And the Sabbath was an absolutely boring time, and he came to hate it. Now he's beginning to realize, well, the Sabbath is in the Bible, but I don't want to keep it the way I kept it in worldwide, because that was such a bad experience. Now I want to learn to handle it right. So I say, go for it. Learn. Do what you have to do to learn what you need to know. So Paul said, be careful. If you're around Jews, don't tell bad Jewish jokes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Whatever. Uh, if you're around black people, don't tell racist jokes. If you're around people who don't believe in the law, don't shove the law down their throat. Uh, you know? I don't go to Walmart or Costco or somewhere and try to tell people, don't you know you ought to be keeping the Sabbath? Why do you keep Christmas? You know? Why do you, why are you, why are you getting that pig out of the counter? Don't you know you're not supposed to eat pig? Well, that'll win them, won't it? It's not my job to preach to them. It's my job to get along with them and set a light to the world. So I talk with them in the checkout line, but I don't go over their list and see what's in there that's bad for them that they shouldn't have and tell them about it. No, they're without the law. They're without God. It's not my job to try to point out how they are not godly. They better learn godliness from my example, not from my mouth. That's all he's saying here that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. 
I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, if you're around the weak, and they're doing things that the weak do, and it's sin, do you sin with them in order to gain the weak? No. You approach them in such a way that you do not appear to be righteous or self-righteous or to be smarter or more spiritual than they are. You meet on common ground. You talk about things that you can talk about that will not offend them. And if they pick up some things from you without you pushing them at them, fine. A light to the world is quiet. The light of the world shines. It does not talk. I got a light right here. Have any of you heard it yet today? I'll shine it in your eyes and make you uncomfortable if you want. No, we don't shine it in their eyes. We just glow. Is what we're supposed to do. And if they see the glow, wonderful. So, you know, I take pig to my... Mechanic and his uh, fiance and unclean things, and I give them to them to eat. And I don't tell them, you know, this is really unclean and you're going to go to hell for eating this pig, but I thought <laughs> I'd bring it to you anyway. No, they're going to eat the stuff, and they're Gentiles, spiritually speaking, so fine. They don't have to buy it, they can receive it free, and so on. Now, if they offer me a beer, I'll drink it with them. Because they're that way. So, I talk somewhat in their language that they use, that we might develop a communication and a friendship, and then later on, they might ask some question that they want an answer to. So, I'm not preaching to them. I'm not trying to tell them how they're wrong and that I have the right church now and you ought to come to my church. They don't go to any church. Why should I try to convert them? That's God's job. That's <coughs> my job to set an example not to try to convert them or teach them. And we can kid ourselves. Well, I'm not trying to convert them. I'm just trying to tell them. Come on. Sure you are. Don't lie to yourself. To the weak, I appear to be weak as well. I made all things to all men that I might by an all means save some. <coughs> and this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. He's not really saying in so many words, when in Rome do as the Romans do, because the Romans didn't do right. But when you're around this kind of people, you act a certain way. And when you're around this kind of people, you act a different way. I learned that a long time ago. If I was around wealthy people who went to the opera, I was very more mindful of what I said and how I said it. And I, I tried to appear as educated and as intelligent as I could. That was a test at times, but I tried to be that way. 
But if I was about to rush about around a bunch of rednecks that were drinking beer and using slang, I drank beer and used slang. So we could develop a relationship and a companionship. That's all he's saying. Do you go to the extremes of drunkenness or the extremes of whatever they're doing? No. He said that in another place. You don't go there. But understand who you're around. Understand their education. Understand their background. And be careful with them. And try to appear in such a way that they can relate to. And then maybe that'll have caused some good in the long run. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Well, who was he around here? People who were fornicating and adulterating and eating uh, or, or worshiping idols and all kinds of things. So he was trying to relate to them. And he's saying, you know, God called me to be an apostle, and I'm a minister, and I can take your money and I can live off of it, but I'm not going to do that. And if you're new and young and weak, then I'm going to relate to you and not try to act like I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. How would that have gone over if he'd gone in there with that attitude with the Corinthians? Not too well. All my good deeds are written right here on my white collar. See? They wouldn't have been impressed at all. Know you not that they which run in a race, everybody runs, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. He's encouraging zeal and energy here. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. If you're an athlete and you're running races, want to go to the Olympics, you take care of your body. You can't be out drinking beer and eating pizza every night and expect to win the Olympics. Not going to happen. You stay in training and you are very, very careful what you eat and drink. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, he says, I'm thoughtful and I'm organized in what I'm trying to do. And we have to go after it. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So how is he relating to them? He's saying, I have this knowledge. I've imparted this knowledge to you. And now, I'm going to try to set the example of following it as assiduously as I possibly can in an example of zeal and training and disciplining myself to obey God to set an example for you. And he said, I realize you're weak. It may still bother you to eat a piece of meat that's been offered Diana. It doesn't bother me, but I won't do it if it bothers you. And he says, I could be a castaway too. You people have problems. I got problems. So he says, I have to be careful that after I've taught you, I don't do what I'm preaching and I'm cast away from God myself. So he says, we're all in this together. 
We all have to work at it so that we're not cast out, but so that we succeed and win the prize. So he's, he's, he's being to these weak people as weak and saying, you know, I'm just like you. I got problems too. I have to work on myself. And that way he related to them. So that they could say, you know, he's, he's fighting just like we are. He's got the same problems we do. Therefore, uh, we better listen to what he has to say because he's working on it. We've got to work on it. And let's all win. So, let's love each other. Let's not be puffed up. Let's not be judgmental and condemnative of each other. But let's all work together knowing that we're all imperfect we all have problems, and we all have to work on them so that we can all win the prize. We're in it together. Let's help each other, not hurt each other.